So we're here in the book of James again today, and we're going to be talking today in the book of James more about what it means to understand this kingdom that Christ has brought. And that's what James wants us to see. How can we practically apply the truths of this spiritual kingdom, kingdom, this redemptive kingdom that Jesus has brought, full of mercy and grace and hope in a time when there was not a lot of hope. And James seeks to bring these to life to his audience. And he wants us to understand not just those he wrote to in his day, but for all the church that would come after, and that means us, he wants us to understand how we can adopt a, a spiritual path, a, a direction, a trajectory towards God and towards Christ, that we would be obedient to what the Lord calls his church, that's us, what he calls us to be. The path we're on, though, as we've talked about these past several weeks, it can be windy. It can be difficult. It can be filled with uh, frustrations. The conditions that we travel spiritually and emotionally and practically, they they can be hard sometimes. They can be really hard. And as we seek to travel towards God because of who we are as faulty, sinful, broken beings, we can get lost. We can get disoriented spiritually. I remember the first time I was in Scouts and we were out traveling through the woods. We were at our first camp in western Pennsylvania, Camp Yukoko. Why do Scout camps always have the weirdest names? I don't know. They just, they do. And we were traveling, and so it was our first time doing orienteering. Now, if you're not familiar with this, if you weren't a Girl Scout or Boy Scout or in the military or anything like that, orienteering is where you're given a map, you're given a destination and a compass, and you have to figure out how to use what you have to get yourself there. Uh, So this is not always an exact science. It requires some adjustments as you go. It's a process. You have to always make sure you're paying attention And often, not just in scouting, but in the military, it's the time when people get hurt the worst because you end off out in the woods and you can trip and fall and you can get injured. It's pretty easy to happen. And I remember about halfway to where we thought we were going, we came upon something that told us we were going the wrong way. It was a gigantic fence with razor wire. And for a bunch of nine-year-old boys, this is back in the days where you put nine-year-old boys in the woods with a compass and that was okay. You know, our parents or scout leaders would say, remember, a broken leg costs more than a funeral, you know, and they would just send us out in the woods, let that one sink in a minute, it'll make sense. Just, but that's what they would say, hey, you guys are fine, take off, you'll be good. And we were out in the woods and we all looked at each other and said, uh-oh, we're not where we're supposed to be. And so we had to figure it out. We had to go back and figure out what we had missed, what we had misunderstood about our circumstances to get us where we were supposed to be. That's what we do in our lives as Christians. We look for the spiritual truths, the deeper truths that God provides through his spirit that dwells within us and through his word, which is supposed to be that lamp unto our feet and that light on our path to get us to where God has us to be. And when we don't read God's word, or we don't read it for what it says. We don't actually study it according to the principles established. We try to read our own stuff into it, or we just simply ignore it. When we don't have the Holy Spirit, we're not listening, that's that compass and that map, we can end up, as we talked about last week, way off track. James has written this gospel that we would be reminded that whether in good times 
or in difficult times, whether distracted, whether disoriented, whether lost, whether we're emotionally, physically, or spiritually tired, or just plain confused as to where we should go or what we should do, that God is with us and he's going to guide us and we're able to understand and we're able to communicate what God wants us to do. James is writing, remember, the church has been scattered. He watched the church grow. He watched his half-brother. He watched the Christ walk the cross. He watched him be resurrected and he came to faith and he was a leader in that church and yet the church was scattered and they were persecuted and there was so much going on and so many of those who had come to follow Christ were looking up to heaven with their hands like this and saying, God, what are you doing? James wants to provide that practical indication of what it means for us to have direction into that new kingdom, that different kingdom with different goals than what we would expect, with different goals than what God's people or the Pharisees, as we learned in our last series, what anybody had expected. God said, you guys were all the way over here. I need you to go this way. For us today in our world, it's exactly the same. And what we're learning is that we must seek and share. We must know and then through our lives communicate to the world around us what matters to God. That is the mission of the church of Jesus Christ, that we would have that eternal perspective that God seeks for us to have, that we would seek what matters most to God and that we would communicate, that we would share that in the life around us. And that means first we have to see it, we have to understand it, we have to find that path and we have to be on it. Today, James is gonna build on what we've already learned to teach us more about that, more about what it looks like to go the way that God calls us to go, which oftentimes doesn't make much sense to us and not much sense to those who don't know the Lord and the world around us. Let's be honest, sometimes we look a little weird when we do that. And as we today look at that, we're going to understand that we are not called to see things from the vantage point of the world around us, but from God's perspective, from God's vantage point, from the way he sees things. And that requires us to not look at it our way, but look at it God's way. I'm sure you've heard, you know, don't trust your own understanding, but lean on God, trust in his understanding. The ways of God seem like foolishness to us. We could go through scripture all day long, but James here is going to give us some practical steps to talk about that. So three things we're going to learn today. We're going to learn that one thing, only one thing truly matters in life, and that's a bold statement if we think about it, and what that is 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 true faith and understanding in Christ. One thing matters, that's knowing Christ. And that true faith that we have, it will see us through adversity, through all the trials that we do face, all the times we feel lost. And the last thing we're going to see is God's goodness, it saves us. And it saves us from sin. And that's not just sin around us, that's, that's sin within us. So we're going to look today in, at James. We're going to start again in chapter 1 of James. We're going to start in verse 9 and read through verse 18. And if you want to follow along, James 1, verses 9 through 18. Let's le- read that together now. Let the brother of humble circumstances boast in his exaltation. But let the rich boast in his humiliation, because he will pass away like a flower of the field. I think we lost a verse there, guys. Let me see what happens there. For the sun rises, and together with the scorching wind dries up the grass. Its flower falls off, and its beautiful appearance perishes. In the same way, the rich person will wither away while pursuing his activities. Blessed is the one who endures trials. 
Because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. No one undergoing a a trial should say, I am being tempted by God. Since God is not tempted by evil, and he himself doesn't tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desire. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. By his own choice, he gave us birth by the word of truth, so that we would be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. This is God's holy word. So let's look here in the book of James. We're going to talk through this a little bit. And so first, in the beginning of this passage, verses 9 through 11, there's this idea here about the desire of our hearts and what matters most. What truly matters in this life? And deep down inside, if we all stopped and talked about what truly matters to us, even when we're tempted deep down to pursue those things, if you ever had an honest conversation with yourself on any given day about what truly mattered to you, and if you're honest about it, you'd probably say, it depends on the circumstances. You know what I mean? If it really is. For example, if you find me after I've been working all day, about 4.30 in the afternoon, what really matters to me is eating something. That's what matters to me at that point in the day, if I'm truly honest with you. And if I go home and there's not food ready because, you know, it's just the way practically it's worked out, everyone's been busy, or it's my turn to cook, or whatever it is, I don't, I don't know, whatever it might be, it's usually not my turn to cook because I'm not that great of a cook, but whatever it is in that moment, what's most important to me is whether I can find two things in my house, a jar of peanut butter and a spoon. Amen. That's right. I hear that amen. But in that moment, do you ever have moments like that where just something, and if you thought about that in a vacuum outside of that moment, should that thing be truly important to you? No, it should not be truly important to you. But we're tempted to pursue things, and sometimes they're pragmatic. In certain situations, we pursue things that otherwise would not be so important. And here James is starting and reminding us that our circumstances sometimes will set us on a trajectory towards something that, wow, it seems very important to us in the moment, or with our limited perspective, or even with our broken understanding of the world around us, we might be wrong. We might be completely misguided. And there's a lot here that goes into that. So verse nine, verses 9 through 11 here, James says, let the brother of humble circumstances boast in his exaltation. That's a spiritual term for God lifting someone up. But let the rich boast in his humiliation. And we know what being humiliated is, right? We don't need to explain that. Because he will pass away like a flower of the field. This is interesting as the seasons are changing. For the sun rises and together with the scorching wind dries up the grass, its flower falls off, and its beautiful appearance perishes. In the same way, the rich person will wither away while pursuing his or her activity. So think about that for a minute. There's a lot wrapped up in that. Now, practically, we know what the terms rich and poor mean economically, but this is more than just an economic understanding. There's a spiritual, uh, there's an emotional, there's a holistic perspective to this. This is about being rich in spirit, not just material rich. And people confuse this in Christianity. There's some bad 
Christian doctrine out there, it's false doctrine, I would say, it's not in the Bible, that if you pursue something with all your heart and it's really a good thing, God's going to bless you and give it to you, the health and wealth kind of perspective. You guys have heard this. It's not in God's word. How can I say it's not in God's word? Because it's not what Jesus experienced. It's not what Jesus told us we should experience. It's not what God calls us to be. But being rich or being poor, whether we're guided by certain things or not, can not just be material, but also a spiritual perspective. So James will present these contrasts between what we're after in our life, what our heart desires. And there's a lot wrapped up in what James is saying here. And he, he makes these contrasts a lot. And categorically, James is not saying that, you know, on some wealth scale, like if you have $50,000 in one cent, that you suddenly shifted from the poor category to the rich category. That doesn't make any sense. If you have more than X amount of money in your 401k, if your car is X brand, or that's not what he's talking about. Now, he is saying if all you do is pursue that stuff, you can accumulate everything and miss what life's all about. He is saying that, but that's not all he's saying. That's not all he's saying here. He's making a contrast between heart perspectives, archetypes, kinds of, of people. And that's what he's talking about. And so what he's really trying to get us to say is, see here, what James is really saying is one thing ultimately matters in this life. And it matters, and you know it, to those who know Christ, we know what that one thing is. So if you're a Christian, you know what matters in this life. More than anything else, what should matter to us the most is knowing Jesus Christ more than our marriage. Oh yeah, more than our family, more than our jobs, our bank accounts, our favorite hobby, our favorite sports teams, whatever, I don't, whatever it is. We can get caught up in a moment. Something can be more important to us pragmatically in that moment than it should be. And what James is saying, watch out when that happens because you're off course and you're going to run into a fence. You're going to run into something. And you're off, you're off track. You're not going to where God is. Only one thing matters in this life, and if you and I know Jesus Christ, we are to remember in all times, in all circumstances, good ones and trials, that God is the most important thing. And we're going to be better in our lives, in our marriages, in our families, in our relationships, in our practical situations, and certainly in our trials and difficulties, if we keep that main thing, that one thing, first. And we keep Christ first. That's what he's reminding us. And James has been building on this. Think of James 1, 2. He said, consider it a great joy, my brothers. A great joy. That makes no sense. That's pretty crazy. Brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials, experience that as a joy. That's what he said. A great joy. God uses even these events to shape us and make us more his people. When we run into those roadblocks or fences or pains or difficult, God uses those difficult times to change our hearts and change our lives. He uses those circumstances for good in our lives. And then James built on this again last week. He said in James 1, 6, let him in faith, but let him ask in faith without doubting, for the doubter is like the surging sea driven and tossed by the wind. When we face those situations, we're going to have doubt. We're going to have frustration. We talked about this last week. And following God in good times and hard times requires us not to ask God you know, God, why are you doing this? But God, how are you using these circumstances? How can I see things from your perspective? And James is building on that idea again this week, seeing things from God's eternal perspective. Whether it's a momentary affliction or a momentary blessing, in all those situations, James is wanting us to see that our heart 
needs to be seeking the most important thing to be seeking God. This should make sense for us in our world where things are temporary when they're not lasting. And in our world right now, given what's happening on the West Coast and the Pacific Northwest of America, this makes sense. Think of verse 11 there. For the sun rises and together with the scorching wind dries up the grass, its flower falls off and its beautiful appearance perishes. In the same way, the rich person will wither away while they're pursuing their activities. Think about that. The fires right now that are ravaging our country if you have ever lived in the West Coast or in somewhere like that, you know that the wind itself can come and burn up the vegetation, let alone what happens during the fire watch season that they're experiencing. And they have, of course, these horrendous fires. And I'm sure there are people there who don't know God. And everything they thought their life was about is gone in an instant. Have you been praying for those people? I have. Have you seen the pictures of it? Can you imagine that? I know somebody who's worked as a hot shot as the people that fight forest fires. If you've ever known someone that's done that, it is the scariest thing. Anybody see the fire tornado that they had? Anybody see that on the news the other day? It was like a regular tornado, of course, as the name would imply, but with a big honking 500-foot-tall column of fire. I don't know about you, but if I saw that, I would be terrified. And imagine that comes and sweeps away everything you've ever known. It's gone. Your house, your cars, everything, your, your memories, all the stuff. You've lived somewhere for 30, 40, 50 years. It's gone. That would deeply affect you. And what we're learning here, James is saying, is the stuff that we suffer through in life, if we don't have that eternal perspective, it can crush us. But if we can learn to see things from God's perspective, we can find that there is hope. There is hope beyond our circumstances. But if we don't, and if we give in to that natural inclination, we're tempted to see that all this stuff we hold on to is the point of life. And what God is saying, what James is telling us from the Holy Spirit is that God wants us to see that we're tempted to hold on to all these other things in our lives. Our material possessions, our identities in the world around us, power, prestige, the accolades of others, your bank account. And as I think God's teaching us in our world right now, we're learning that all of those things are temporary. They're going to wither. They're going to wither away. In Proverbs 30, verses 7 through 9, we're reminded another practical wisdom nugget from God's word. Two things I ask of you. Don't deny them to me before I die. Keep falsehood and deceitful words from me. Give me neither poverty nor wealth. Feed me with food I need. Otherwise, I might have too much and deny you, saying, Where, who is the Lord? Or I might have nothing in steel, profaning the name of my God. It's funny in our world today, as people are dealing with all these difficulties, everyone gets stuck in what I call the now. The moment when I want to reach for that spoon in that jar of peanut butter. 
whatever it is. Maybe that's a funny moment. Maybe it's a serious moment. The moment of despair when you're at the hospital and you don't know what's going to happen. The moment when you go into the boss's office and your job is going to be gone. I don't know what that is for you. The moment when we think about how life is bigger than the now. When we recognize that what we thought mattered, it didn't matter. The it's bigger than who we are or who we are not or what we have or even what we lack. And God's word has always been reminding us, God's people have always been learning that life is bigger than the things we think it's about. And sometimes it's only when these hard times come that we recognize that that stuff in the now can distract us from what God wants to teach us. We think that that moment that we're living in is everything. And God's saying, it's not just a moment, the material things, the fears, but it can be other things too. It could be the sorrow, it can be despair, it can be hate, it can be self-righteousness, it can be prejudice or anger or outrage or all the things we're feasting on in our world right now. There are people marching in the streets that have 15 different emotions going at the same time. But if they're not leading them on a path closer to God and who he calls them to be, it's not leading them anywhere at all. Do we understand that in our world around us? Proverbs is reminding us, James is reminding us, this is all temporary. No matter how hard it is, no matter how great it is, we are called to have that perspective from God's vantage point, that eternal perspective where we keep our eyes fixed on Christ. And because we're sinful people, it's the hardest thing we ever do. Me too. Me too. But I'm going to tell you, as a pastor, and I mean this in all love and sincerity, and this is not for our church alone, it's for every church, this is for probably every pastor you've ever known. You have no idea how much time we don't spend ministering to people and how much time we spend mitigating how us as human beings, whether it's the pastor or whether it's someone else or in the church in general, how we transpose what is of temporary significance with what is of eternal value to the kingdom of God. Our human nature, myself included, all of you, whether you've been coming to this church for a week or whether you're an elder in this church, have gone here your whole life or have been here since this church opened, and some of you have. It doesn't matter. It could be a different church down the road. It could be Redemption Church around the corner. Or it could be Parkside Church down the road. Wonderful, biblical, great churches. But we're all filled with sinful people, and we tend to transpose and reverse what is of temporary importance to us with what is of eternal significance to God. It's just our human nature. And the remedy is to keep our eyes fixed on Christ. And that's what James is wanting us to see. Verse 12, blessed is the one who endures trials because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. So James here is now going to build on this. He's going to say, all right, keep your eyes fixed on Christ. Build your life on the rock. Make sure you're focused on that and understand something. Understand that God is doing something in trials to make you more the person he wants you to be. God is at work above what you can see. I've often described this. Dr. Dean Weaver, who mentored me, describes this as what God is doing above the tapestry. 
The backside of the tapestry is all woven and all the strings are hanging down. God is at work and he's threading that all through and doing something. And below the tapestry, we can't even see what God's doing. It's just all messy. But above the tapestry is a beautiful picture of God's kingdom that he is weaving for all of us. But down here below the tapestry, we can grab onto our favorite thing and hold onto it, get stuck on it, get moving on it. And God says, no, no, no. He says, I'm at work and I want you to follow me. Now think about verse 12 there. That sounds a lot like something James' brother Jesus would have said in the Beatitudes, doesn't it? Blessed is the one who endures trial. See, it starts out with a blessing. Think about that. Now, would you naturally think you're blessed if you're enduring a trial? How many of you signed up for a trial this week in your life? Anybody? No, we don't do that, do we? We don't do that at all. That's not something we remotely do in our lives. We don't do that. But yet here, God is telling us that when we endure trials, not Again, as we learned last week, if, but when it happens, when we endure trials, we're standing the test, and God is saying, hey, if you have that eternal perspective, what you're suffering in the now, it's not a bad thing because it's leading you to what's going to happen in the end, and that is the very best thing of all. So whatever you're going through, he wants you to remember that he's at work. And trials can look like all sorts of things. Verse 13, he builds on this. No one undergoing a trial should say, I'm being tempted by God. That word tempted is very important there. Since God is not tempted by evil, and he himself doesn't tempt anyone. Now, there's a word there in the Greek that's periazomai is a word. It's a fancy Greek word. You don't have to remember that. There is no test. But I like to show you how God's word is so specific. So periazo, the word that comes from, it means two different things in the Greek of Jesus' day, of James's day. It can mean in a certain context to be tempted. It can mean in a certain context to be tested. That version of that word right there, that's the only place in the Bible it's used is in James 1.13. And that version of that word is very specific because it's drawing a contrast. It's saying, hey, this word may come from the same thing, but it means two different things. That word means two different things. It's kind of funny because I think... Even as we struggle, and Greek is a very specific language, Latin is a very specific language, and Greek and Latin are very much related to each other, if you understand the historic and morphology of languages and all this cool stuff. If any of you are into languages, you know what I mean. We still use Latin a lot because it's kind of scientific in how we split things up, and the Greek of the New Testament is a lot like that. But even this word, it can kind of seem like the same thing. And James is here saying, hey, remember, being tempted is not the same as being tested. But we do this in our own hearts and lives, don't we? In our own semantics, the way we understand the world. Have you ever said, God is just tempting me with that beautiful piece of pie sitting there? God is definitely tempting me, and this is, I'm healthy, so my, my life is weird, with that no-stir, all-natural peanut butter just sitting there. Now, if you've ever had an all-natural peanut butter and you've never eaten regular, if you've only been eating regular peanut butter, it kind of tastes like dirt when you first eat it. But for me now, with my adjusted palate, it is delicious. And I want that peanut butter. I want all of it. Peanut butter is my favorite thing in the world, if you didn't know. And I have to be careful that I only have two spoonfuls of it. So what do I do with those spoonfuls when I get them? It's the biggest spoon I can find. And the biggest fool I can manage without looking silly, 
I got a scoop out recently, I looked over, and my wife is looking at me like this. And I turned it over, and what did I do? I kind of took the top off of it and put it back in. Even the dog was staring at me, judgingly. Sometimes we're being tempted, sometimes we're being tested. How do we know the difference? God is tempting me with that piece of pie. God is tempting me with that coupon for a sale that just came in my email. Or Is that really true? God's word here says no. What is God teaching us? As we've learned in James, if true faith is seeing us, moving us through adversity, then the one we have faith in, the, the matters the most, who he is, what he does, and the object of our faith, what he does not, matters most. If we're being guided by faith, if we're being guided by the Spirit, if God is who he says he is, then God is not in any way tempting us. How can we say that? How can we say that? our experiences, our knowledge of God from his word, everything we know about God, is God in any way associated with what is evil, wrong, or dark in this world, what is sinful? Of course not. God never tempts us, but when we get upset, when we don't see things, when we get caught, when we get caught up in that immediacy of the moment, we get angry, we don't take responsibility for our lives, we can say, God, why did you tempt me with that? And God's saying, I didn't tempt you with anything, but yeah, you're going to have difficult times in this world, and those times are going to test you, but I'm not going to put you in a situation. God is saying he's not going to put us in a situation where we are not able to endure that. God doesn't say that. He says God is not tempted by evil. God is not tempted by evil. God doesn't do that. Well, pastor, it says in the Bible that God tempts people. Look at what happened to Jesus. That's what James is talking about right here, honestly. James is talking about, remember when Jesus goes in the wilderness and he's tempted? Matthew chapter 4. Three things, what's he have to do? He has to turn stones to bread. Apparently Jesus didn't have peanut butter in his day. He wanted bread. Okay. Or whether he can have everybody's attention and throw himself off the temple, right? Or whether he would bow down and worship Satan and not have to go to the cross. Satan tempted Jesus with the now in his life. But you see, Jesus... Jesus isn't us. He was fully man. He was fully tempted. But he's also fully God at the same time. That's a theological thing. We call that the hypostatic union. You do not need to know that unless you want to impress somebody that's really into the Bible. But what that means is God is totally like us, but he's totally not like us at the same time. So Jesus withstood temptation so that we would have a way to eternal life, but he knows what temptation feels like. He knows how horrible it is and how painful it is. Even when he faced the cross and he had blood that was like, you know, sweat coming off of him, and he cried in the Garden of Gethsemane for God. He said, God, do I have to do this? Jesus knows anguish. He knows temptation. He understands it. But yet, God who sent him, and he praises his Father and says, but Father, not my will, your will be done, because you're perfect. You're God, and I'm going to follow you. God is not evil. God does not author that. I am not being tempted by God, James says, because God is not tempted by evil. Jesus was not tempted by evil, and he's fully God, and he himself, God does not tempt anyone, but God will put us in situations where we're being tested. We're going through it, and we're tempted to give in to the now, and Jesus is saying, God is saying, don't, you don't have to do that. 
God is not tempting you to do evil because he's loving, he's merciful. He doesn't do that sort of thing. In fact, James is saying, that temptation you think is coming from God, that's not in God's nature, that's not in God's character. He's all-powerful, all-knowing, but he's also all-loving and all-merciful. It doesn't come from God. James says in verse 14 and 15, it comes from somewhere else. But each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desire. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. That progression there is very important for us. Sin comes from that hunger, that desire, that nature inside of us. And sometimes people don't like me when I talk about sin. Pastor, why are you talking about sin? Because it's the biggest problem in the world today. The reason we talk about it is because we all swim in it and we just do it and we don't even realize it. And what God's trying to get us to say here is don't say that I'm causing you to sin. God says you're born into sin. I'm giving you a way out. I'm guiding you away from those barriers in your life. I'm guiding you out of those dead ends, out of those brokenness. God says I'm giving you a way out of your sin. That's what he's telling us. Sin does not start in God, it starts in all of us. When we take our eyes off of God and place them on anything temporary in the world around us that we make into an idol, that we believe will provide us the wholeness and the satisfaction that only God provides, the goodness, the hope, the light, the peace that only God provides. We look for it in the stuff we do, in the things we seek, the material things, the addictions, the accolades. We look out on the internet and we look for it when we get those clicks and those likes on the internet, which the dopamine that gets released in our brains there is just like what you're seeing when you do something like heroin in your brain. If you haven't seen that, there's some documentaries out talking about that. I talked to our staff about that two, three years ago when a guy named Simon Sinek first started talking about the research with that. You know, when you get a like on the internet, it's the same as getting a hit of heroin to the dopamine receptors in your brain. And if you can fight about things that you think are important on the internet and other people can fight back with you, oh, that can make you feel really good. Don't. Those things are going to get burned up. They're not going to last. True faith requires that we see things for what they are, and that includes how we see us. That hunger for sin drives us, it owns us, it, it moves us into even greater sin. That's what verse 15 is saying. See, that sin starts here, and here, before it goes anywhere else. I'm not saying that all your thoughts have to be perfect, but think about what comes into your heart and your mind because it's going to blind us. The worst thing sin does is it moves us away from God's perspective. It takes God out of first place. And then we start to think that other things we put up in the first place are going to make us happy. Our stuff, our relationships, if I just date the right person, my life's going to be good. If I just get enough money in my bank account, my life's going to be good. If we can just completely change this country and fix all the stuff that's bad with it, everybody's really pretty good and life will be good. The problem with a lot of what we're not seeing in our world is it's not from a biblical, godly perspective. You know the problem with America today? It's filled with sinful people like us. It's going to keep being filled with sinful people, and we're going to keep being sinful people unless we place God first in our life and repent of our sin. 
God is reminding us that we can't fix it ourselves. Colossians 1, 13 and 14. He has rescued us from the dominion of the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the Son He loves. In Him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. What is God saying to us? He's reminding us. God is not tempting us. He's not even leading us any which way. We're doing that to ourselves. All he's doing in his son Jesus Christ is saying, here is the remedy for everything wrong in your life and wrong in your heart. And it starts with recognizing who I am and who you are not. The remedy in Jesus Christ, that new kingdom. No longer do we have to live in it. No longer does it take root in our minds and control us. We have been set free. It does not have the last word. Here's the good news. Here's the good part. James is saying this too. Only one thing matters in this life. True faith sees us through it. And God's goodness will save us from our sin. And that means God's goodness, if we will surrender to it, will save us from ourselves. That's what James is telling us in James 1, 16 through 18. He says, don't be deceived. Don't be tricked into not seeing it, brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, who does not change. God doesn't change. No matter what we try to change, he's still the same. He's not like a shifting shadow. By his own choice, he gives us birth by the word of truth. That's important. So that we would be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. What God is saying is, all the stuff you screw up, all the stuff you mess up, all the stuff that comes into your life and spoils it and, and rots it and chews it up, all the sin that you eat that you think is going to be good for you, that you consume in your life and your heart and your soul and your thoughts, God says, I'm here. I haven't left. I still love you. Don't trick yourself into seeing that you're going to figure this out on your own, thinking that you have it all under control. Don't be tricked into thinking you're not that bad. Cheer up, it's worse than you think it is. But God is so much better than you and I can ever imagine him to be. And he is the cure for what ails us. Jesus Christ is the cure. Whenever we do things at church and somebody says, why aren't we doing this thing or why aren't we doing that thing? Because if it's not about telling the world how Jesus Christ is the remedy for everything that ails us, it's not what God put us here to do. It's not what we're here to be about. God is the only source, the only source for goodness. Even things that seem to have nothing to do with God, when the Rolling Stones have a hit and they've got a lot of them, And you think the Rolling Stones and Jesus don't have a lot in common. That's common grace. God's goodness is still in them. When a tech company comes up with something that actually makes your life better and has nothing to do with Jesus, that's still God's grace. Every good and perfect gift, every good thing that happens, every innovation, all of that is from God's grace and mercy and love. All goodness comes from him. That's why he's not the author of sin and darkness. He is pure goodness and pure light, and we're not. And he doesn't change like the shifting shadows, even though we change all the time. We go this way, we go that way, and we get lost. And God says, here I am, I love you, and I've got what's good for you. That's what James is wanting us to see. When we go through trials, when we go through struggles, God is not just tempting us. He's not doing that at all. He's testing us to say, will you recognize that all you have to do is look up and listen to me because I'm here and I love you. He's loving us even when we go the wrong way, even when we seek destruction. In Christ, we have hope. And friends, I want you to rest in that hope today. No matter what's happening in the world around us, no matter who you want to win the election or who you don't, or maybe you don't want either one of them to win, 
God is bigger than all of that. God is bigger than everything. Whatever you're facing today, God is bigger than that. C.S. Lewis puts it like this. But the great thing to remember is that though our feelings come and go, his love for us does not. It is not wearied by our sins or our indifference. And therefore, it is quite relentless in its determination that we shall be cured of those sins at whatever cost to us, at whatever cost to him. Friends, the reason you can see your trials as pure joy, the reason you can trust that God's not tempting you, but in fact, he's the remedy for your sin, the reason you can do all those things is because God has sent his one and only son at great cost that he would become the payment for our sin, that he would set us free, that he would empower us, and that he would not only do that, that he would guide us by the power of his word and by the power of his spirit, that we indeed could be a new creation, that indeed we would someday, sometime, be eternally cured of all sin and all death and all darkness. And as we carry that truth, as we share that love, as we rest in that grace, God will not only change us, but he will use us in this difficult age through these trials, through these struggles. He will use us to change the world around us that others would know the power of Jesus Christ. That's the glory of the gospel that James is proclaiming to us even in times of trial today. Let's pray. God, that we would know what it means to belong to you, that we would understand what it means that we could be your very own creation set apart that we could be transformed. God, that we would know that you are with us, that you love us, that you'll never leave us. And God, even when we seek all these other things, even when we get ourselves so far off the path and we hunger for what happens in the moment, you say, no, I'm with you. I love you. I'll never leave you. I'll never change. And in fact, I'm going to use even these things to make you more my child, that others would know, that others would come, that others would be changed by your amazing grace. God, use us to be those people this day, that we would bear your grace, that we would bear your truth, that we would bear your life, we pray in Jesus' name and all God's people said. Amen. Amen.